This is Bimbo Bookshelf, a podcast focused on books, literature, and love of learning. Each episode is hosted by two friends, Brittany and Sophia, and occasionally includes co-hosts, interviews, and listener voicemails. Join us on the never-ending wormhole of books and topics that pique our interest, and reach out to us through Instagram DMs or email at bimbobookshelf at gmail.com to be part of the conversation. Today's episode is on Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. This book was voted in as our August through October book last year. The conversation around this book will be split into a two-part episode. Today, we're discussing the author, his influences in other works, along with the first four circuits of the eight-circuit model of consciousness that this book is based on. I've personally read, reread, highlighted, flagged so much of this book, partially for the book club highlights, but equally because I found myself continually wanting to dive deeper into the particulars of what he writes to come back and better understand this book. I mean, just listen to the ASMR of all of the tabs that I have. I'm like, I don't understand so much of this. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, we might even need to just talk about his influences and how little I think most of us might know about most of these people. I think Leary is probably the most known person followed by perhaps Crowley, but both people I would say were fairly misunderstood or misread in their own right. And I'm not necessarily saying that as a supporter or fan of either person either. Right. Um, but then people like James Joyce, especially like Gurdjieff, how do you even describe or get into who these people are, um, let alone describe their work to say how it influenced Robert and John Wilson. So I know he was really influenced by Krzyzewski. Um, The one thing I know he had at some point in his life attended Krzyzewski lectures, and I don't know if he had seen him speak himself or if there were like lectures about his theories, but it was these ideas of general semantics and the way that words relate to our perception. People are not working from the same frameworks that Robert Anton Wilson was working from at the time. Books on neuro-linguistic programming that he was referring to are now out of print. Um, And if you Google NLP, you're probably going to now find creepy pickup artist shit Mm -hmm. and like dark psychology. And I know that's not what he was on about. There were people who were like making a really scientific go of it at the time, but that felt a lot of favor or whatever the reason was and I don't think now if we try to research that we're gonna find anything but pseudoscience (laughs) and I think that kind of speaks to why one of the reasons why we might both really like and be drawn to his work he was very like self-taught and he always sought out new information and he like attended lectures and classes and continued to educate himself throughout his adult life and find ways to explore new information without being an expert himself. So there's a sense of humility, but also intense curiosity that I think that he had that is really appealing. Quite a few of those names were completely new to me or new to me around the time that I started learning about him. I think when you learn about one or more of these writers or philosophers or 
you know, whatever around this era that we're all heavily influenced by each other. It kind of rabbit hole spirals into learning about somebody else who influenced somebody else, which is kind of cool. But a lot of them are big names where if you know who they are, you know who they are. But a lot of people really don't, especially if they weren't really around in the time frame they were popular, which we weren't. I mean, I wasn't. He wrote some of these books before I was even born. So yeah, when was this? Should we start there? When, uh, yeah. when this book was originally published? Let's see, 1983. It says the first edition <laughs> was published in 1983. The copy that you have is actually way cooler because I have the third edition. I think this is the newest one from 2016. My cover is kind of boring, actually, but it does have the preface to the second edition in it. So if you have the first edition, it might be a little bit different. I think you said yours had the preface to the second edition in it too, didn't it? It did. It shows up to the 17th print day in 2007. So I'm wondering if that's, or 2005, I'm wondering if that's what it was. I'm thinking now, honestly, the acknowledgements are very much naming all of his um, influences. And uh, one big one that I forgot about was R. Buckminster Fuller, who's someone I, I still don't know too much about, but I know he had a lot to say about sociological technology. And he's often quoted for having made some pretty interesting predictions about the future. I'm just seeing this part in the intro where he talks about being mildly embarrassed by his predictions that proved over optimistic parentheses <laughs> i have revised them of course in keeping with my current knowledge and best guesses the people that he credits and the acknowledgements go from like carl young to alistair crowley just the range of different philosophies and theories that he was influenced by it's kind of cool to see i think that was a pretty succinct summary of what the book is about for such a wildly sweeping book that is frankly maybe too dense to understand in one reading or several I think you summed it up honestly or as far as the topics <laughs> or maybe just to give people context or background about the book I do think what you said is really accurate if you know who Robert Anton Wilson is already you might know who a lot of these other people are because they all do seem to kind of exist in the same like weirdo sphere but then if you've never heard of any of these people before, this is a huge rabbit hole. Because as we've been talking, I think I thought about a bunch more people. William S. Burroughs is definitely someone whose work kind of at least overlapped with Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah, he quotes then, like, him a lot in this book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he does, actually. You mentioned another like B-era author that I was thinking of. But then those authors are truly so dissimilar from like some of the super sciencey stuff, the consciousness research that he's interested or in, or like the life um, expansion, or like even retaining consciousness after death, all that stuff. His personality is such a huge part of mm -hmm. his writing. And I think that makes him different and stand out from some of the others that he was heavily influenced by. And it definitely yeah. makes this book way more entertaining than some more academic approaches or some more like strictly psychedelic approaches or, you know, whatever. He's got a mix of that in there with his more humble background and family life and his intense curiosity and willing to be wrong. I think that's a huge thing about him. He has pretty much said, don't ever believe your own bullshit. I think that's a quote from him. Don't believe your own yep. bullshit. And he really 
explores in that way. Even when he writes, he talks about how it's just his perception at the time. This is how he views things now and that it's up to change or up to challenge because he wants to continue learning and growing. And I enjoy reading authors like that. I think sometimes it's hard to read. Even if people know what they're talking about, it's hard to read when people are so like stuck on their own scent, you know, and he's really not like that. And it makes some of the topics that he brings up in this book more digestible. I think we were talking about this previously about, you know, some stuff in this book we really felt enlightened by or really drove our curiosity or we felt made sense. And then there's some other parts in this book, just that Wilson had, you know, things Wilson had talked about that were kind of like, okay, the life extension and consciousness extension and life never ending. And he kind of got into that in the end of this book. And I could see where that would lose a lot of people. Oh, this kooky guy believes he's going to put his consciousness and live forever and he's never going to die. And that loses a lot of people. But the fact that he is like, I'm wrong about a lot of things. Maybe I am wrong, but this is what I want to believe that it makes it more of an interesting story. I really mm-hmm. like that about him. Yeah, that reminds me of that quote from him that I'm going to just paraphrase where he talks about how he wants to use his imagination to create the happiest, most romantic worldview that's possible. And, you know, I always really appreciate that. And uh, I feel like what you were saying about how the, his work comes about, he even kind of says that in the um, preface, says like the preface to the second edition. Like most of my books, this text emerged only partly from my conscious design and partly from subconscious accidents. So there's like a level of humility and acknowledgement for the things outside of his control and that how much of creative outlets like writing a book or, you know, engaging in any kind of work like that, you are such a conglomeration of so many different influences. And I feel like he takes a lot of time to seek out naming his influences, honoring them. And I think that that's something that's honestly very rare among like academic type books, or even just kind of what you were talking about with people who are presenting their opinion or perspective. There's oftentimes this complete disregard that there could be other ways of thinking about that, especially if you get into the realms of personal philosophies or, you know, again, with like the psychedelics, there's a lot of dogma. And I think he ultimately was just anti-dogmatic, which is probably what we both find most appealing. Yeah, I think that he was a very, very humble person and a very intensely curious person. And that shines through in his work. It's not about him proving his point or that his theory on the models of consciousness are correct, but sharing with you what he's learned, what he thinks and why he thinks that, how he got to these conclusions. And he like kind of wants to bring you along the journey with him in your own kind of way, which I love, especially a book like this. If you're going to be reading it and rereading it and going back, it's cool to do that on a journey with someone that invites your own perspective to it, that you're not just trying to read and understand it like a book report, get the point of it. What's he trying to say, but it's more like, what are you getting out of this? That's what I really liked about this book is that it seems more like a tool and a guide for you to use how you see fit versus him trying to push his theory of consciousness on you. Though, of course there is some of that in there, but I (laughs) think the way that he writes it, 
it's more of like, Hey, if you're curious, come check this out. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it and bring your own perspective to it. I will forever love this book just for starting off with the story, um, from William James about this old woman who says that the whole earth rests on the back of a large turtle. And he says, but my dear lady, what holds up the turtle? And she says, ah, that's easy. <laughs> He's standing on the back of another turtle. Oh, you see, says Professor James, still being polite. But would you be so good as to tell me what holds up the second turtle? It's no use, Professor, says the old lady, realizing he was trying to lead her into a logical trap. It's turtles, turtles, turtles all the way. So the thinker and the prover, which is the title of this first chapter and kind of sets a basis for this book, right? So it basically says that we have a thinker and a prover and that our prover will confirm our biases and prove whatever the thinker wants beyond a reasonable doubt. So this lady with her turtles, it's turtles. She has a thinker and a prover and in her reality is based on turtles. It's turtles, turtles, (laughs) turtles. (laughs) You know, people believe whatever they want to believe and they believe it hard sometimes. And the weirder and stranger it is like turtles, 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 the more I want to read about it. But I think it kind of sets up the point of our consciousness and how we think. And I think that's why he opened it with something so silly because it's kind of like turtles, turtles, turtles. It's like madness everywhere. What does it even mean? (laughs) And I didn't think to dig too deep into the first chapter because it really just kind of sets up how your brain works. And to some degree, I think we all know that a little bit and can understand we can convince ourselves of anything that we want to believe, right? Like, I think we mostly say it like that instead of thinker and prover. Uh, You know, when we want to believe something, we can make ourselves believe it, whether we realize we're doing it consciously or if we don't realize it and it's unconsciously, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, after it's kind of funny how the book segues, we get this really cute story, but then it pretty much segues to like how people can convince themselves of terrible things. I think the example that it gives is anti-Semitism and, you know, that he also kind of mentions man-hating feminists, although that's not his verbiage. You know, he's talking about misandry um, or the idea that some men couldn't be also just poor or that not recognizing some women have privilege. And it's interesting how you know, simply he states certain concepts like this, that this is a pretty slim chapter. But I think honestly, the chapter itself is kind of like an info dump, like you said, setting up the book. And just about as long, we also have this list of exercises that were given. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes. I love the (laughs) exercises for chapter one. It's not just exercises, but it's another foot in to see more of how weird this book is going to be. And these exercises are like, for me, at least when I first got to the, like the first chapter exercises, I was like, oh, this will be fun. I'll do these at the end of every chapter. No, you won't. They're, they're like lifelong (laughs) goals. (laughs) Truly. We have 10 of them in this one alone. No, 11. One that I thought was really really powerful is after he kind of tests you with all these different things go visualizing a quarter you know can consider what different worldviews may control your mind or your consciousness don't come to any conclusions write about this reread this in a month 
you know, all these different things. There's a couple of different ones that I skipped over, but it concludes with saying, believe that you can exceed all your previous ambitions and hopes in all areas of your life. Believe or convince yourself mean to do what an actor does. Pretend until the pretense begins to feel real. Or as jazz musicians say, fake it until you make it. I think at the beginning, yeah, in the beginning of this one, before it even goes through the exercises, it says, sad as it is to say, you never understand anything by merely reading a book about it. And that's why he included all of these exercises. And I think that that's really true. And I think I honestly have even gotten more out of this book in trying to figure out how to talk about it (laughs) and put that out in the world than I did reading it, which I feel like is an exercise in itself. But if I was able to actually go through this entire book and do all these exercises, I'm curious where else it would put my mind. Yeah. I think uh, one thing I wrote in our notes was that we should challenge each other to one of them. So we'll have to pick one. Um, that the other will have to do <laughs> maybe if you oh want, yeah we'll have to make down. this really interesting can we put in special requests because I know there's one in here somewhere that talks about smoking weed and going to the spa because I oh, dare yeah, you to dare me really to good. do that <laughs> chapter two is hardware and software the brain and its programs he talks about the brain like a computer but not a computer more like hardware and software how hardware is more real, like in space time, as he says, where it's a tangible object and software is the information it holds. Your physical brain is the hardware, the computer and the information inside it, including our tunnel of reality and consciousness. That's like the software, except he says our software is non-local and heavily influenced by outside sources. That's also a point that's pretty well known, like a lot of psychologies and theories, the influence of, you know, nature around us, the way that it changes our thinking, especially when we're young and being imprinted, it continuously affects our conscious, you know, our input affects our output. The way that we perceive the world around us has a lot to do with the actual world around us. It's interesting how you put that too, when you said that being non-local that did make me kind of think about more of the implications that that might have for consciousness but I love the kind of prefacing he gives around the brain this analogy of the brain being computer he's very specific about it saying calling it a bio computer or an electrocolloidal computer as distinct from electric or solid state computers and it says please note carefully and long remember that we have not said the human brain is a computer the Aristotelian idea that to understand something you must know what it is has been abandoned in one science after another for the pragmatic reason that the simple word is introduces us to so many metaphysical assumptions that we can argue forever about them. But it was really interesting to me that he was made this distinction of not confusing the thing uh, that it's being compared to with the thing itself. And he also puts these quotes around the word is, which I think is a reference to the work of the general semantics that he's into. This idea of like removing the word is was something that I think Korzybski talks about. And I think that Leary might've been on about with this, um, 
think it was called E-Prime, this language that Leary and Robert Anton Wilson were both interested in trying to communicate in as a way of better articulating things rather than getting lost in the implications of different things, meaning different things, essentially. If we wanted to get a little bit more explanation of what that is, it says E-Prime, put simply, is the English language without verb to be or any of its conjugates. This means no be, is, are, being, was, were, or been. E-prime was first poured by David Borland, a founder of Krasipsky. So when we see that like is in quotes in this book, that's what he's referring to and kind of like making a nod at not wanting to even use the word is. There's a quote in there and it says, all experience is a muddle until we make a model to explain it. The model can clarify the models, but the model is never the model itself, which made me think of the Korzybski lectures, which he does quote in this book, um, The Map is Not the Territory, and that's a YouTube lecture. Well, it's not a YouTube lecture. Gosh, 21st century brain. It's a lecture that I personally watched on YouTube, (laughs) but it's the same kind of thing. And for some reason, for me, I had to hear that explained in so many different ways to really understand what it meant. And there are different ways that he tries to explain it in the Mm -hmm. book. He's like, the map is not the territory. The menu does not taste like the meal. The word is not the thing itself. Yeah. I like that one too. But I like, I haven't heard that one. The word is not the thing itself. Um, I read that today. I was actually looking up the map is not the territory and kind of looking into what that meant and how, how else he talked about and explained that, which I didn't run into what you were talking about. So that's really cool that you brought that up, uh, learning something new. That's the one that clicked for me. The word is not the thing. Oh, duh. The way that you communicate things can change your perception of reality. Yeah, it's incredible. Our language does have a tremendous capacity over our ability to imagine, and it's very much tied with our perspective. And I think that's a very core concept in like magical practice and um, you know ceremonial magic or really a lot of different religious traditions it's even you know in the bible the word was you know like all of those ideas surrounding language but he puts it in such a different framework in this book that you can see those influences if you've read those kinds of things like you've said about it a lot else you know it does make it a little bit more accessible so In chapter two, he breaks down kind of the different circuits, um, and I'm not going to read them all in depth, but it's like two pages long, so I'm not going to read it. But what I am going to read is the list of the circuits and like the first sentence kind of explaining it so that you can kind of get an idea. I think a lot of these circuits compared to other psychologies and other philosophies, so they're kind of recognizable. Okay, so the first circuit is the oral bio-survival circuit. This is imprinted by the mother or first mothering object and conditioned by subsequent nourishment or threat. The second is the anal emotional territorial circuit. This is imprinted in the toddling stage when the infant rises up, walks about, and begins to struggle for power. The third is the time-binding semantic circuit. This is imprinted and conditioned by human artifacts and symbol systems. Number four, the moral, social, sexual circuit. 
This is imprinted by the first orgasm mating experiences at puberty and is conditioned by local tribal taboos. Number five, the holistic neurosemantic circuit. This is imprinted by ecstatic experience via biology or chemical yogas. Number six, the collective neurogenic circuit. This is imprinted by advanced yogas, biochemical and electric stresses. It processes DNA, RNA, brain feedback systems, and is collective in that it contains access to the whole evolutionary script. Number seven, the metaprogramming circuit. This is imprinted by very advanced yogas. It consists in modern terms of cybernetic consciousness, reprogramming, and reprinting all other circuits. Number eight, the non-local quantum circuit. This is imprinted by shock or near-death or clinical death experiences, by out-of-body experiences, by trans-time perceptions, by trans-space visitations, etc. These circuits will be explained in detail as we proceed. You can see how they like escalate pretty quickly <laughs> from like, okay, I'm with you to, okay, where are we going? I think that's probably why it's hard for us to talk about this book or hard to know where to start. I think for me, one of the few things that makes this book kind of a little bit more digestible is having such a personal perspective on his work through reading Cosmic Trigger, which is more autobiographical and kind of about this weird period in his life um, in the 1970s that influenced a lot of his work. But it's a lot about his life with his wife and his kids and all of that in conjunction with this weirdness. So I feel like without that priming, I don't know if I would be able to follow all of this because like you said, they escalate. And if you're not already familiar with the eight circuits, I do think it can be kind of hard to make sense of it all, but I think we're going to do our best. Definitely. We will try and link show notes to as much rabbit hole links that you can go dive through yourself. If you're curious, his other books and other works are a good place to start. This was the first book that I read from him, and it was kind of difficult to understand. I had also been a little bit familiar with some of his other work. I've listened to some of his lectures and had a little bit of brief history on him, as well as feeling responsible for this book club, like deep diving while I'm reading it. So I feel like I got a little more out of it than I would have if I just picked this book up and was trying to understand what his point was. I think it's a little <laughs> bit hard to take on by itself. I think that's fair, but I do think the Krasipsky lectures that you mentioned that are oddly, we both had watched or listened to, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think are a good starting place. And um, I don't know. Did you want to look at the exercises now? I can't believe I almost skipped the circuits. That's the, whole, <laughs> the book. is. <laughs> well, it's kind it of like weirdly hidden in chapter two and it doesn't really like mention it. I just happened to flag it earlier when I noticed because the beginning of the book, it almost kind of breaks them down, but really it's just the chapter titles. And there's a couple of chapters who say like three, four, five or about the circuits and then six isn't. The book is kind of broken up like that, which I think we'll be mostly focusing on the different circuits because this book is such a collective work. I don't know like where to even begin with some of it. So narrowing it down to the circuits and what they mean and how they're imprinted is a pretty good way, I think, to dive into this book, to try and talk to other people about it. 
because you know most book clubs you have a bunch of different people's opinions and perspectives coming in and really this is two friends just chatting about a book so we've got a lot to cover here but the exercises make it fun they do. I feel like the one for chapter two, especially just because it says, for instance, are you doing this exercise? Because obviously you read about it in this book. Why did you buy this book? Did someone recommend it? How did that person come into your life? If you just picked the book up at the store, why did you happen to be in the store that day? Why do you read books on this sort of thing? Psychology, consciousness, evolution. How did you get interested in those fields? Who turned you on and how long ago? I mean, he goes on what factors in your childhood inclined you. It literally just continues. And then he even says, repeat this exercise and try to answer 50 questions you didn't think of the first time. You don't think to ask yourself. Well, I mean, I don't think to ask myself, why did I buy this book? Where did I buy this book? But if you're thinking about your conscious and your reality tunnel, sometimes you do have to ask yourself why you're doing the things that you do. And it's interesting because I did read this book because it was recommended to me. And it's kind of funny, like reading through and answering these questions to myself, who recommended it? And I'm like, gosh, who put that in the book club? I don't remember, but thanks for doing it. Whoever recommended it. How did that person come into your life? Instagram.com. Thanks, Mark. Um, (laughs) But it's just fun to go through and do that and makes this book a lot easier to discuss with other people because you can ask these questions and do these activities laugh a little bit in between trying to understand how your conscious mind works plus on the other side of the page we have an ouroboros titty mouth situation (laughs) so you can't help but laugh definitely gonna have to share these pictures i'm not sure that we'll be able to share all of them in the show notes just because there are so many if that doesn't encourage you to get this book alone or to look up the pdf it's just so good we'll share what we can but this one particularly really good that's on chapter three the next page which also starts the next circuit the oral bio survival circuit Yes, this is where we get Freudian. Mm, Yes, I was going to say, I think the first few circuits are mostly all somewhat recognizable or comparable to other theories and psychologies. And when I was looking at it earlier, I remembered that it was somewhere in the book, but it's on page 108 for anyone that's interested. He has like a box comparison of the first four circuits and how you can kind of, he puts them like side by side to Freud and Jung and even um, like Carl Sagan, I think in his like reptile brain. Gosh, I feel like I got to pull that up now that I'm talking about it because it <laughs> sounds crazy to someone if you are not familiar with him, but yeah. Okay. So it's the summary and he like compares circuits one through four, their origin, where they're imprinted on the brain. And then he compares names and other psychology. So he's basically saying these first four circuits are more or less identified in all theories of development, all psychological theories, or at least the most commonly understood and accepted ones. I won't say all, never say all. He compares them to the most commonly practiced and understood ones. And this one is definitely, I think, the most recognizable. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like everybody knows the idea of like having an oral fixation uh, like trope. And this is where it gets interesting that before Richard Alpert 
later known as Ram Dass, and of course, Timothy Leary became such big psychedelic figures. They were definitely Freudian psychologists. Psychology was still super dominated by Freud and his ideas in the 1960s. So I think it's actually interesting and kind of cool to see that being really explicit here, because I feel like later on in psychology now, um, it's a little bit more out of favor. And that's kind of like those are considered less popular or more regressive ideas. And yet they super dominate a lot of our thinking, a lot of our zeitgeist of psychology and a lot of our concepts in the psychedelic realm and in the consciousness realm. And so I just appreciate that this book is very explicit about them and actually explains what they are descriptions of possible oral fixations, chewing gum, gnawing your knuckles, uh, always eating chips, chewing your lips. You know, it says what goes on in the bedroom is known to the Kinsey Institute and anyone who has seen a porn film. (laughs) He goes from taking studies of psychology to like making BJ jokes. It's just great. (laughs) Like even if you read Wilson's work and you're not really feeling it you're not vibing with it i think it's undeniable that his books are entertaining and the way that he writes is very humorous he says of this circuit in the one of the first few pages go forward to the nourishing the protective or go back away from the threatening and predatory i feel like that's like a core buddhist concept this idea of most humans seek to detract the negative and seek the positive or you know essentially a minimized suffering seek pleasure and like a common thing that we do psychologically that is you know I think embodied by that concept but also in order to like grow you have to widen your tolerance for displeasure or widen your tolerance for discomfort and I don't know if maybe that's what that quote was getting at but I don't know I think you're onto something The exercises in this chapter are pretty cool too. They're on page 38. I hadn't picked any out to go through here. So I'm just going to, oh, you know what? This is actually the chapter that says that you should smoke weed and go to the spa. Number three says, get quote unquote high on marijuana. If this is permissible to your super ego or on ginseng, which is legal everywhere and recommended by many holistic physicians and then go to a health spa. Enjoy a good swim, a massage, and a sauna. Repeat every week forever. I wish, man, if any exercise out of this book that I would love to do on repeat forever. I know. That's why I know we're on the same brain because that was the one that stuck out to me the most. I was like, that sounds so nice. I love this advice on a lot of levels, but particularly, you know, getting high and going for a swim just sounds so nice. A lot of the exercises in this chapter kind of circle back to the conversation about play and curiosity and the inner child. And we spoke before about really loving that about Wilson and how that shines through in the way that he writes. He seemed to have a lifelong prioritization of play and romance and having the life and his reality the way that he wanted on top of continuously digging into his curiosities and allowing himself to play in those and learn and explore. And I think a lot of us really shut down parts of our inner child when we get older that he definitely didn't 
I mean, I feel like for the podcast, it's perfect. All the exercises are totally about child mind and embracing a sense of play, like you said. The first one says, play with yourself and others and the environment shamelessly like a newborn baby. Meditate on, unless ye become as a little child, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And then it ends with, if you don't have a baby or haven't had one for many years, play with someone else's baby for an hour. Then reread this chapter. This is like all prefaced with stuff about neuro-linguistic programming and breathing techniques and Wilhelm Reich and gestalt therapy. And it just chapter alone is so dense. I mean, I don't know if you wanted to read any of it um, before the exercises, but what it has to say about the susceptibility for illness or in the relationship to fear and the way that one's panic and anxiety relates to the mother in a way it struck me as very um, resonant when I first read this honestly I definitely felt like these kind of more Freudian things were a little bit I don't know how I would phrase that frame them like okay interesting I'm sure this has some basis in reality but also like you guys are obsessed with buttholes um <laughs> But then, you know, I don't know. I've also started to think more. I think we've talked about this off the air about this idea of as a child, whether or not you have a nurturing figure that is providing care. And I think in this in this chapter, he relates that to the mother, but I don't think it necessarily has to be a parental mother. It's just really any parental companionship. Being raised without that, particularly as a child or an infant, literally affects one's ability to conceive of success in the future, the ability to see the world as a welcoming place. And I think that this chapter really ends up kind of touching on that, how that sense of healthy trust can really be bound up in one's ability to be successful. And it oftentimes comes from these early imprints, as what he calls them, these early experiences. But then it's like nestled in with all this information about how we can kind of get fucked. I feel like we get these cool little opportunities to rewire. And I, I re appreciate that kind of too. This also sense nothing's ever fully lost. You know, we can right. understand the ways that we might be affected, but it doesn't mean we have to be held subject to them. These imprints that are made from, like you said, the mothering or parental figure affect someone's entire life but this book suggests that there's a way that we can hack it and re-imprint things for ourselves which is a really interesting thought usually take a lot of time to go back to think of what could have been imprinted when I was a toddler, that's making life harder for me now that I could work on possibly changing for myself yeah. And it's just maybe as simple as um, observing your breath or your thoughts or playing a little bit more. And I find that very promising. Anything that can make me remember that sometimes things really just are that simple. Sometimes you just need to play more. You just need to be more curious. You need to allow yourself to do the thing that feels right and not necessarily the thing that's expected when I know in different chapters, they talk about the consciousness and the way that society's expectations can play into molding your consciousness in different ways. And I think this is the first chapter that really starts getting into that. Oh yeah. Honestly, talking about that 
might be a good segue for the anal emotional circuit because I'm looking kind of skimming with the first chapter. I love the picture that this one starts off at. It's <laughs> yeah, we have to just describe it. <laughs> this picture is great. It's this person with this angry face lifting up their leg pissing like a dog on a car <laughs> the car has a plate that says mine on it and while this person's got like this ugly frown on its face there's a big smiley face drawn on their belly button and you can see like their little pecker pissing on the wheel it's so weird it kind of somehow simply in this image encapsulates the feeling and emotion behind this entire chapter so good so weird so good and honestly this might be the one that your description is even better than the actual image <laughs> it truly is all about how i guess psychologically provocative the concept of shit is or how much it has an effect on primate psychology I don't even know how to kind of start to unpack that. And I feel like I've got to stop saying that about this book. But this was a chapter <laughs> that I found so fascinating. I guess I could just, he talks about primate behavior, kind of like this concept of hierarchy. And I think he's also kind of using this, not strictly talking about real animals or monkeys, but just in a more metaphorical prehistorical sense, where mm. it goes on to say, those who got caught were called no good shits. The term no good shit was a deep expression of primate psychology. For one instance, one wild primate, a chimpanzee, taught sign language by two domestic primates, parentheses scientists, spontaneously put together the signs shit and scientist to describe a scientist she didn't like. She was calling him a shit scientist. She also put together the signs for shit and chimpanzee for another chimpanzee she didn't like. She was calling him shit chimpanzee. <laughs> you know good shit domesticate primates often say to each other this metaphor was deep in primate psychology because primates mark their territory with excretions and sometimes they threw excretions over each other when disputing over territories totally you know a photo that you described pissing on someone's car marking your territory dude <laughs> right so there's really something very primal about this but the chapter really goes on to elaborate on all the ways in which ass shit any kind of i feel like this is just gross any of those kinds of exclamations as well as insults are just very freudian and primal in nature and he really starts to make this very very interesting kind of connection between essentially that kind of insult and like war and violence mm -hmm. um he says you know when they went to war they got violent they talk about knocking the shit out of the enemy they always spoke of dumping on another i find that part really really interesting because he then makes a connection between patristic or essentially patriarchal value systems and dominant like alpha male value systems and this violent shit obsessed anal imprint which i feel like i hopefully you know people aren't going to find too offensive to read but also i do think if you feel that way maybe examine the relevancy that this might have in real life it's the butt chapter, you guys. Maybe it's just the child in me because I'm over here giggling. I'm not like offended. I'm like, she said poop so many times. Oh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> We're pretty saying hilarious. anal through our microphones and then we're going to put it out there for anyone else to hear. There's a quote on page 43. He says, depending as always on the accidents of the environment, 
what happens at points of neurological vulnerability, this circuit will recognize itself into a strong dominating role in the pack or family or a weak submissive role. Without going into the jungle of ethologies, one can observe this mammalian imprinting process in any litter of puppies. It is very quickly determined who is top dog and who is bottom dog. That kind of goes back to the mammalian shit throwing and he is shit. It's at a very basic animalistic nature, the shit show. He, he talked in, about someone else as well, this sociologist, uh, G. Retray Taylor, which Retray is spelled rat tray, which is also funny. <laughs> he claimed that societies changed between the characteristics of, he called it matrist and patrist. This kind of goes back to the last chapter and what you were talking about, especially relevant now. Not all family systems are that mother father dynamic. So this guy, Retray Taylor, his theories were around it being a matrist and patrist. And this was something that society is like fluctuated between typically perceived as like feminine or masculine. For example, some of the things that he said would be matrist or patrist, someone who's permissive towards sex versus someone who's restrictive towards sex or someone who considers themselves progressive versus someone who considers themselves conservative and egalitarian, authoritarian, you know, the duality of it or whatever. And he says that societies as a whole always fluctuate with these characteristics. And Wilson says, whether or not societies wobble between these extremes, as Taylor claims, individuals certainly do. Honestly, this chapter was one of the ones that I, besides, you know, I was obviously entertained by all of the poop talk but I had a hard time with like some of what felt like very gendered concepts very rigidly defined distinctions and yet I feel like rereading this I can kind of see a little bit more of the I don't know if I want to say wisdom or perhaps like what was behind what was being said without getting bogged down in the terminology used so much Because I do think that you can see the distinction between, you know, offering nurturement versus offering structure. And again, that could be something that a parent plays both the roles and it doesn't have to be gendered. But we do oftentimes define those kinds of energies in like a masculine or feminine terms for Mm -hmm. better or worse. You know, I think that that's like very common both in psychology, although not perhaps now, but definitely within the realms of magic or, you know, consciousness expansion. Hold up. Magic, conscious expansion, excretions. I think we've had enough shit for one episode. Stay tuned for part two of our chat around Prometheus Rising and all things stupid. It may be no exaggeration to say that stupidity has killed more people than all the diseases known to medicine and psychiatry. Intelligence is the capacity to receive, decode, and transmit information efficiently. Stupidity is blockage of this process at any point. Bigotry, ideologies, etc. Block the ability to receive, robotic reality tunnels block the ability to decode or integrate new signals. Censorship blocks transmission. Maurice Nicole, physician, psychiatrist, student of Jung, Gurdjieff, and esoteric Christianity wrote that the only purpose in work on consciousness is to decrease the amount of violence in the world. 
This is public health problem number one in the nuclear age, the age of overkill. Thanks for hanging out and listening. You can be a part of the conversation by emailing us at bimbobookshelf at gmail.com, Instagram at bimbobookshelf, or voicemail via Anchor. Please send us your comments and questions on Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson or adjacent topics. If you enjoyed our show today, you can subscribe and leave us a sweet five-star review or just tell a friend. It helps us recruit the others. Until next time. Mm-hmm.